0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is published or not. Authors are often told to write about something that they know. And for us readers, it often takes us into areas we know nothing about. And today's book is As Swallows Fly. Welcome, L.P. McMahon.
2: Thanks very much, Jane.
1: So, Lawrence, you're a professor of what?
2: Uh, nephrology, which is kidney disease, um, and that includes dialysis and transplants and people who have high blood pressure and protein in the urine. So a whole range of things.
1: Well, by reading this book, I know you know your way around a surgical theatre. Uh, but I didn't realise there were so many dramatics behind the scenes doctors or surgeons vying with each other for the top job uh,
2: it happens when jobs come up it's a, it's a competitive area um, and and uh, particularly if people have academic aspirations uh, there, there can be quite a degree of competition involved um, it's it's not an everyday sort of thing. Usually people get on with their job, uh, which is what they're there to do.
1: (laughs) And sometimes some people want to get into research. Yes. And that's a difficult thing to juggle too, especially if the research involves a 3D matrix of facial bones and growing up stem cells to cover the matrix. Now, this is sort of more in the plastic surgery line rather than the kidney line. Very much so. Is it hypothetical?
2: Uh, It's kind of a natural extension of where things are heading. Um, Um, And I think, you know, once they have that 3D individualised matrix of people's joints, which mm. is where things are happening now, um, I think that we'll see more and more of that that kind of process, which is ideal, isn't it? That's that's what we'd all be searching for.
1: (laughs) New hips, (laughs) new
2: knees.
1: But this could put plastic surgeons out of business. And we do have as our main character in this book a plastic surgeon called Kate Davenport. Lawrence McMahon, do you work as hard as she does?
2: Uh, it feels like it at the moment. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I
1: bet it does. There's also this whole thing about plastic surgery compared with cosmetic surgery through the book too. We have minor characters like Mrs Costello who's thinking of getting a boob job to keep a husband and um, Mel who always has a project and whether it's a nose job or a house renovation and when they finish, there's on to the next. But all of this sounds rather intense. We really need to get into the fiction. So tell us a little bit more about Kate Davenport
2: uh, well Kate was really a compilation of a few characters uh, over the years uh, is is representative of the drive that uh, surgeons but particularly female surgeons I think need to have to survive and to prosper mm. I think that she loves what she does um, and I think that she is very good at what she does and her patients really love her and that's a that's a very Common and worthy component of of what we do. Uh, beneath that, of course, is her, is is the fact that she's psychologically flawed, mm. um, struggles to keep herself on balance, but nonetheless has a, a heart as as big as a house and will always respond to need. Uh, dipping below that surface a bit, I think, is a uh, is a.
1: Well, let's not go the too deep okay, here. Okay. Let's okay. just find out. Is there a man or a partner in her life?
2: Well, at the time that we meet her, no. Mm, no. Uh, she-, uh, she has uh, what she describes a, a, thro- a train wreck of a past. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's something that she lives with and I think has buried herself in her work partly in relation to that uh, until a new arrival, a person, her surgeon, uh, professor who becomes not only her mentor and friend, but also an interest, of course.
1: Mm, Andrew Jamison from London. Kate hasn't seen her best friend, Lucy, for 20 years. Mm-hmm. She also has a questionable relationship with her mother. This is a quote. Old friends like parents were embedded in the debris of the past. Debris she has spent her life escaping. But she comes home back to the family home. So why does she come back?
2: Uh, I think that that's one of the conundrums of our existence, isn't it? We all desire to have a home uh, very much. And although Kate's former home, uh, because she supposedly lives out of home, but her it nonetheless represents home to her. And uh, through the book, she actually doesn't move out of there once she moves back and her mother's gone. So it is it is that sense of connectedness, I think, that she's finally able to explore uh, free of her mother's influence.
1: Well, she actually runs the wake for her mother at the family home. And it's a delightful read because there's a certain rhythm to it. And if you've been to a wake, you know about the people who turn up. Some are more dried-eyed than others. Some are neighbours who are just goosenecking around to see what the house is like. But it's here that she actually sees her uncle Mike and he's got a different role.
2: Yes. Uh, So her her uncle Mike is a a Jesuit who's uh, returned from the missions and he is looking to Kate to provide a link with a, a very special girl uh, in Pakistan.
1: In Pakistan. Mm. Now, this is where Lawrence McMahon, I think, has got a little bit of history.
2: Yes, uh, I, I um, spent some time working in Pakistan many years ago now, or at least uh, a number, in a small uh, country uh, hospital at the time. It was a little uh, mission hospital, in fact. And I took over the uh, an ultrasound machine. It was an obstetric uh, hospital mainly, and uh, they had no ultrasound at the time, and so it was a matter of uh, teaching them uh, how to work it and what to look for. And then we went on this tour of um, of this uh, this priest who was a, a remarkable and lovely man. Um, had been there for twenty five years in the one place, uh, but he had the parish, and we travelled for three or four days around his parish. It was that vast, but pretty scattered and, and hardly um, more than villages uh, on the way and it was at one of these villages that um, the second main character in the book uh, emerges uh, and did emerge uh, in actual fact
1: well this is Malika mm. and she's a young girl when we first meet her very yes. young yes and she's she doesn't even speak because she's so upset and traumatized traumatized mm. why?
2: Uh, well, her parents have have been killed in a bus accident, and she and another boy, uh, to hear, uh, were left as the sole survivors of this bus accident. And uh, the policeman took them mm. to uh, his cousins in the village, and that's where Malika uh, effectively spent her years. Well, from there,
1: she may not speak, but she has skills, mm. and with confidence she does speak to her this to, to the, the stepmother the Alicia, Aisha, that Alicia yeah. that looks after her. But it's first of all, it's her sewing skills that delight the, the girls and, you know, the mothers of village and she's drawn in. And then it's her ability with numbers. And the other girls just don't have this. And it's a quote from the book. Malika spoke to them of arithmetic and the games that numbers could be made to play and the priest then comes sees that she's gifted and wants to teach her english but how's this seen by the patriarchal men in the village
2: well it's it, it and it, it it is a patriarchal system and and that's uh that's partly uh, apart from the the all the normal problems that go with it but it's partly also based on survival these mm. villages are do what they need to do to survive, and the village elders uh, fear the emancipation of the women because it would leave, if they all grew up and left the village, that would leave no yeah. one to to do the village work, and so the village survival is is tenuous, and so this this dynamic exists, and eventually the uh, of course the priest uh, was able to convince the elders that uh, to let. Malika do her own thing, but they wouldn't agree to the other girls becoming no. involved.
1: Fatima does, mm-hmm. and, and Fatima does learn a little bit of English, mm-hmm. although she shouldn't, and, uh, but it's, it's, it's Malika. And it's a love for the foster mother. You know, the, the generosity and the friendship with Fatima allowed her to get absorbed into the village, but this never happens with the young boy, Tahir. Who also comes into the same ho- household in the village? Why didn't he get included?
2: I think that the villagers did try and welcome him, um, and I think that uh, his uh, his isolation was largely self induced, and I think he was a troubled young boy, and I think the difference in their uh, in the religion uh, also didn't help, and. From his perspective, he was not allowed really to engage in practicing his religion and he had no access to uh, other Muslims. And uh, from their perspective, this Christian village really couldn't see what his problem was and wanted him to switch over and get on with things. So it was this tension that developed and Tahir was just of that nature that he was not going to do as... He was told to do But uh, animosity grew
1: Yeah, no, we're not going to say what mm-hmm. But it, the why and the how Is absolute drama in this And I oh was just horrified But it was very well written And this takes from Malika From Pakistan to Melbourne She's passed special exams in Pakistan It's Father Mike Who finds her at the boarding school And it's the same school that Kate went to So, does Malika fit into this school?
2: (laughs) Yes and no. Uh, I think Malika is uh, so smart and sees so much of of how to get where she wants to be and she's able to cope, apart from uh, one teacher in particular who takes a a dislike to her.
1: Mrs. Cullerton, with those pale, hard eyes. Oh.
2: And she uh, and so she sees uh, Malika as being uh, not only specially gifted and therefore I think is uh, intrinsically jealous of her but also demands that she's not given special treatment so one of the reasons for uh, Malika to be there is to actually do her computer modelling in the maths department at Melbourne University. And Kate actually thinks, uh, thinks that she's taking lessons until she's uh, put on the right track by the, by the professor there, that uh, she's really ahead of them all. So it's, uh, and so the story develops.
1: So, and this is where the title comes in, yes. as Swallows Fly. Now, I don't know whether you've ever seen a murmuration of swallows that all cling together. but this is where you've got the idea for uh, Malika's math theory. Yes. Is it a true one?
2: It may be. <laughs> oh, well done. Uh, I think there's I think that there is some some element of truth uh, and it does intentionally bear a relationship to what what we call fractal equations where they're nonlinear, uh, rather random. Uh, based around quantum uh, mechanisms and so forth, but it's this apparent randomness uh, which nonetheless survives and enables different formations to evolve. Um, and we see this in swallows at the edges where the mm. where it's almost the the ones that the leaders are suddenly the followers, and so it drifts and hovers and it looks beautiful, and I think that's the beauty that that Malika sees as well.
1: Yeah, so she tries to make these maths theories about the outliers and who draws what. And and when the professor explains just if they can crack this, they, they can work out drought. They it's it's wide out, open. Yeah, phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal. So let's go back to these two women again because mm-hmm. Kate has been told to pref- befriend Malika, mm-hmm. to have her on the weekend. And what they try to do is develop a friendship. But Kate's not good at friendships, is she?
2: No, I think she has to learn. Uh, and I think that uh, she to learn she has to make herself vulnerable and take that risk, take that step that she's never been able to do before.
1: They're both pursuing perfection. Yes. We see this with Malika and her mass problems yep. and this with Kate and her surgery. Yep. So it's just trying to find their own identity and a sense of home yes they both need that don't they yes
2: very much yeah and i think that the 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 two are linked and are related um that sense of home and that and that sense of identity and the drive to perfection which i think uh increasingly dominates all of us um in what we're trying to do and how we do it and i think that it's good until it takes over um and sometimes i think that that can be represented by growing anxiety, that, that is increasingly common as well. So I think that that balance of, of seeking perfection but also being gentle with ourselves and understanding our vulnerabilities is, is crucial.
1: In the acknowledgements I'm quoting, mm-hmm. novels are written through the experience of few but the input and influence of many. You're very generous with the people you thank for getting you and this novel out.
2: Uh, I, I think they all played a role. I think uh, um, writing workshops and input from different people with great ideas, uh, they're all valuable. Ultimately, you have to sift them down and decide what, what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. But certainly, uh, each person is able to help um, open, up, open up what previously were closed doors.
1: So we get the life and the death drama of Malika's illness the amount of different surgeons required and the intensity of the nursing team. And also we get the anonymity of the patient. You know, when one nurse says, oh, I I hear she's really smart. Kate's response is, she'd knock Spock off the bridge of the enterprise. (laughs) And the success that they had together, I love this they succeeded just like swallows. Yes. Could a successful female Melbourne doctor be as vulnerable as an orphan girl in remote Pakistan? L.P. McMahon takes us on a remarkable read through the circumstances of life and surgery in A Swallows Fly. Thank you very much, Lawrence.
2: Thank you very much indeed, Jan.
1: And now it's David's turn. My
0: interview today is a rather unusual one. Christopher Hawkes has written a very intriguing book entitled The Miscreants. I spoke with him about the novel last week. I was alerted to the fact that Christopher had a profound stutter. After trying to edit the recorded interview, two things were clear. My editing skills were not sufficient to make that recording workable, but also, the level of editing required would fundamentally alter the impression generated about Christopher. In other words, an edited soundtrack would not be a true representation of Christopher. My intention, therefore, with Christopher's permission, is to talk about the book and cover what we discussed in that initial interview. The novel begins with a mother's suicide the ramifications of which are quite profound for the two half brothers, Harry and Ethan, as well as for Nat's husband. What follows are two narratives set 15 and 16 years after that initial event. The first follows Harry's quest to find Ethan. The second is an account of Ethan's quest to create a place to belong. The title, The Miscreants, is quite appropriate. Both Harry and Ethan are living on the edge and take their respective realities to the brink. They are both capable of doing things that are unlawful or wrong. The reader is left asking themselves when looking at these misdeeds, whether they are justifiable, whether they are part of the mistakes one makes as an adolescent and whether one can redeem themselves, given the nature of what is done. The first narrative track focuses on Harry. He discovers that his father is ill. Mr. Walker has, in fact, been drinking himself to the point of death, partly in response to his wife's suicide. Harry, at the time, is living in Canada when the call about his father comes through. His life until that point in time has been relatively directionless. He has followed his girlfriend to Canada. He's been partying and drugs and alcohol feature in his life. Though he's offered a job by his girlfriend's father, he ends up stealing to pay off some debts and make his way home. There is an element of immaturity here with which a lot of young people might well be able to identify. Does any of this make Harry a bad person? What is also telling is Harry's sense of reality, something that comes through continually throughout the novel. He was beneath an ocean at a depth without light, the fathoms above so heavy, everything moved with languid motion, ignorant of haste. He swam away from it. Those are the opening lines of the novel, and we have Harry experiencing these dreamlike moments throughout the narrative that could be explained by tiredness or the aftermath of getting high. His stealing then fits into this sense of how we perceive reality. His stealing is done for the right reasons, which doesn't make it any less criminal. It's the miscalculation of use, which is something with which again, We can all identify Harry is making stupid decisions. He then has the task, once getting back to England, to try and find Ethan, his older half-brother. This has him embarking on a journey to the far reaches of Sweden, where the length of the day, or night for that matter, distorts one's sense of time. As part of this journey, he meets Greta, who knew Ethan. There was a clue left in Ethan's abandoned flat. Harry had broken in another criminal act, but again, understandable, to find information about Ethan. Greta is pregnant. Now, I don't want to say too much here, as there are some discoveries to be made by the reader which will surprise. Greta is a woman who grew up amongst a cult And this makes her background intriguing and adds to the notion of how past events and decisions made by parents, supposed adults, can influence the behaviour of individuals and ripple down to the children. It also speaks to this notion of how we perceive reality. And just to add another dimension, there are extracts from a science fiction book punctuating Harry's story. This book was sent to Harry by Ethan. It's been written by Xavier Priestley and is entitled Quest of the Iridiumites and concerns the establishment of a utopia. Ultimately, Harry pushes even his own physical boundaries in an attempt to find Ethan who is believed to be living on the northern coastal reaches of Sweden. So, different realities, conduct being determined by the past behaviour of others, individuals making bad decisions for the best of reasons, and curiously, Harry almost mirroring his own father's conduct. Harry has the potential to take responsibility for someone else's child. The role models in our lives and the example set, therefore, are very important. This leads us to the second thread in the story, that of Ethan and his quest to discover himself. Ethan's struggles are a little more profound. He has no idea of who his biological father was, but Ethan is also struggling emotionally and psychologically. As a child, he was different. He even took to wearing a white suit, which made him stand out even more. He is having difficulty finding his place at university where the essays, he writes, while brilliant, don't actually correspond to the course he is undertaking. He is searching for his identity and a sense of belonging. We actually first meet Ethan on a commune in Sweden where a small group of rather Idiosyncratic individuals are trying to live a self-sustainable life. Ethan, however, seems to be the one most focused on maintaining the collective and keeping the group together. He is, in fact, aware of how to manipulate people. Here's an extract from when Ethan is talking to a potential new member. We're trying to do something special here. We're trying to make a community, a new community. Obviously, we've got to have some contact with the outside world for now, but we don't engage where we don't have to and definitely don't tell people what we're about unless they need to know. But you invited me. You're special. At this, he let his anger rise, knowing the power of praise mixed with criticism. You you heard the voice, you had the courage to follow it. Yes, this place is beautiful, but we don't want people who only come for the view. Curiously, it is Ethan's previous encounter with Greta that has sparked his quest to find a utopia. In many ways, Ethan has borrowed Greta's past in an attempt to address the hollowness he feels in not knowing his father. Unlike Harry, Ethan doesn't have a male role model. What is also intriguing is that Ethan has sought help from the counsellor at the university where he was studying, but the clinical nature of her observations are just as disturbing as Ethan's unresolved problems. The primary role model for future sexual engagements in heteronormative families is the parent of the opposite sex. Lacking the role model or having only an infantile memory of it can leave those stepping stones into the sexual world feeling as if they were without foundation. The clinical diagnosis is a reality all of its own and doesn't necessarily help Ethan who is caught up in his own search for meaning. We also have his fascination with the Xavier Priestley novel and the idea of utopia. But that notion of a utopia is very disturbing because Ethan gives us the actual definition of the word. Literally, it means no place. And just to add to that unreality that we encounter, Not only are there dreamlike moments, but we also have conversations between the dead. This is suggestive of where Ethan might be heading in terms of his awareness of reality. Just as Harry seems to be emulating his father, Ethan might be traversing the same path as his mother. There are many identifiable moments in this novel, I can well remember trying to make sense of my first year at university. It was a different reality. Christopher Hawkes has expounded on this quest for identity in both the stories of Harry and Ethan, how easily our reality can be altered, how readily we can approach the edge, not just of what is legal, but what is moral and sane. I'd be encouraging people to read it. The Miscreants by Christopher Hawkes, and it's a Glimmer Press release. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.